0: Welcome to the St Emlins Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall.
1: And I'm Simon Carley.
0: And it's really good to be back talking with you again after what has been a little bit of a hiatus. I have to admit it's been a busy time. Winter in the emergency department is not a time for messing about and free time and all the things that you enjoy in life. Well, perhaps it should be and we maybe talk about that later, but it's been a busy few months. And my apologies particularly for not being here on the podcast. Simon, you've been busy too?
1: Yeah, so lots of things going on in Manchester. Again, it's been a busy winter. Clinically, it's been fantastic. Huge amounts of critical care over the winter. We've actually performed not too badly. We've certainly tried to keep up our clinical standards of care, and we've done a a lot of stuff in the resource room this winter. It's been, from a critical care emergency medicine perspective, it's been really very busy indeed.
0: I find it pretty hard, actually. As you may know, I'm the clinical lead, clinical director, whatever you want to call it, for our department. And you do feel a personal pressure about trying to keep your department going. And the one thing I do struggle with, I don't know what everyone else out there feels, that seeing emergency medicine on the front page of the newspaper most days over the holidays and over Christmas and the hard times, I actually find that really difficult. It seems to make life actually more tricky to be reminded the whole time that life is quite tough. There's part of me that wishes they'd just let us get on with it, really.
1: I think there is something in that, but we do need some systems change. We do need to make some fairly big structural changes to how emergency medicine is delivered if we're going to give high quality care. Despite all the pressures, I am consistently impressed with the ability of our junior doctors and our consultants to really work extremely hard to try and keep people motivated to deliver high quality care. The nursing staff, the porters, the receptionists, you know, when people are under stress and when they're really being pushed to the limit, it's really kind of heartening to see just how well they react to that. Although I've got to say for some, the pressures are pretty
0: tough. And one of the sea changes I think we're seeing and one that we're really trying to do in Southampton is to look after our staff. So a lot of my job as clinical lead is to try and make sure that our staff are doing okay. I work really closely with our matron. We've got a really sympathetic executive who get that this is a tough job. There are days when I just simply want to go home And I've been doing it a while and I think I'm pretty experienced. So always reminding myself just what that must feel like if you're a junior doctor or maybe a nurse who's just started an emergency medicine. But also trying to remember there's some really good points too. And we've had some real highlights over the last few months as well.
1: And I think the education side is working very well. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. isn't it? We're going to be talking about what we've done on the podcast and what we've done on the blog to try and bring it all together so that we're still looking to get better and better and better and to do high quality emergency medicine.
0: So the aim of this podcast is something we've not really tried before, but what we thought we would do is a review each month of everything that's been happening in St Emlyn's. Now, for some of you, you might listen to the podcast, but not really see the blog. Some of you will read the blog and not listen to the podcast, but I guess you won't know I've said that. But what we wanted to do was review the St Emlyn's activity for the last month go through some of the excellent posts that have been produced by the team. And it is important to remember, St Emlyn's team is getting bigger all the time, superb people in it. So we'll work through some of the blog posts that have been posted, a little bit about our own opinions about what's going on. This is a bit more of an informal type podcast, but hopefully still educationally important and gives us the chance to chat things over in a slightly less formal fashion. So Simon, it's been a really busy month on the blog site. We've had some excellent posts. And let's start perhaps with one of the posts, not just of the month, but of the year. Alan Grayson's post about stroke thrombolysis, a hot topic for emergency physicians, and he goes through it in a brilliant way. It's a really excellent post.
1: This has been controversial, really, from the early days of FOMED, when it was one of the big topics, which was talked about at the original SMAC conference, actually, back in 2013. And this controversy about whether or not stroke thrombolysis, well, it's that question of whether it works. And then the obvious question after that is, what do you mean by work? It is controversial. There's a great paper published in the Emergency Medicine of Australia Journal by colleagues, including Ollie Flower, of course from Smack, who we know very well, looking at all the trials which have examined the utility of thrombolysis in stroke. As you know, we've done huge amounts of investment about changing the way that structures work to move stroke patients around, have hyperacute stroke centres, and people who are employed really just to do hyperacute stroke management and thrombolise people, and yet when you actually look at the trials, the evidence is nowhere near as strong as I
0: thought it was. Alan's blog post is superb. If you're one of those people who's coming to this new, head over to the website and have a look because he does a great introduction to catch you up on everything that's been happening over pretty much the last two decades. Gives you a real review of what's going on. And then this paper, which is critically appraised, goes through the evidence and talks about the use of thrombolysis in stroke and comes up with some really startling numbers, actually. So if you dig down into the paper, as Alan has done, He comes up from this systematic review of a number needed to treat of about 21. So what he's saying there is that for every 21 people you give thrombolysis to, one person will have a benefit. Now, in the world of number needed to treat, that's not too bad. But if you look at the number needed to harm, it's about 17, maybe 18. For every 18 people we treat, we cause harm to one that wouldn't otherwise have had harm. So the balance is there already. The numbers needed to treat them, needed to harm are pretty close. Even more telling is the number needed to kill, as Alan's called it. So for about every 40 patients, one of them will suffer an early death if given thrombolysis that they otherwise wouldn't have had. The mortality statistics further down the line at six months are less stark than that. And it goes into the hundreds. But those are really quite interesting numbers to think about. That number needed to treat of about 21, number needed to harm of about 17, and then this number needed to kill of about 39.
1: And I think what Alan's done with this data, because we can always get bogged down in numbers and and some of the complexity around analyzing the data in these trials is really difficult. But what Alan did is he brought it down into what would you do with the patient in front of you? Because when you look at the Stark numbers, it's often quite difficult to decide whether that's a benefit for this patient. So Alan puts it, you know, that if it was him, a young, fit, healthy guy who had a dense hemiplegic stroke with potential for very, very, very severe long-term morbidity, but yet a small chance of a significantly good response, he actually thinks, well, maybe I would, but I'm not sure. But then what would he do if it was his 85-year-old grandma with a history of ischemic heart disease and arthritis? Well, on balance, probably not. If it was his father, who's 62, he's well retired and active, probably not. But It's a conversation you'd have to have with the patient. And one of the things that came out of this, and one of the things which I love about blogging, is that we started to get some real conversations with stroke physicians around the world on Twitter and on the blog. We challenged several of them to say, well, what do you say to patients? What data do you give to patients? How do you express things like number needed to treat and number needed to harm? Interestingly, they don't. Most of the consent process appears to be based around ideas of benefit and harm in loose terms rather than stark numbers. In terms of shared decision making, and this is a really good area where we should think about shared decision making, I think we can do better.
0: And this whole conversation comes down to the crux of emergency medicine. We can be scientific, and I hope at St. Emily's we're usually very scientific. We analyse the data and we look at the data, but that's looking at populations. What about if it's you? What about if it's your brother, your mother, your granny? And then the data gets less important to you, really. Got it at the moment, a relative who's got cancer. And you think, well, there's not much evidence for that chemotherapy. But you know what? We're going to give it a go. And for us to balance up those desires, the emotion of wanting to make things better, which is every emergency physician's desire, alongside this data, I find really difficult and perhaps one of the most challenging parts of our job.
1: What I want you to do at the end of this is go and have a look at the blog, and then find your local stroke physician and ask him some questions. Say, what is the number needed to harm? What's the number of early deaths in terms of numbers needed to kill, if you want to express it that way? And what's the overall benefit in terms of number needed to treat? I just want to know whether you get good answers.
0: But alongside that, don't forget the realism that's going on in our hospitals at the moment. So we've got the data, we've looked at it, there's more evidence coming out. But there are Key performance indicators, KPIs that your stroke physicians will have to be meeting. And I get this all the time as a clinical lead. So I'm working with our stroke lead. We have to try and get our patients into CT scanners by an hour because somebody else has said that's important. We have to get our patients into hyperacute stroke units within four hours. Now, I'm pretty happy to agree that that's important, but they're working to these targets that aren't necessarily agreeing with our data, but they've got to do it. And as an emergency physician, I've got to work with them because it's important. I can't just stand there and go, do you know what? I don't believe in it. So bad luck, trust. We're going to fail KPIs because I'm going to tell our doctors not to do it. So there's got to be a pragmatic way forward. And we've got to realise there's a realistic thing going on in the world as well.
1: Bottom line there is don't get sacked on the basis of something you read on a blog, even our blog.
0: And always, always, always read the evidence for yourself. So that was a real highlight from February. A really great post. Go and read it. If you read nothing else on St. Emlyn's this month, that's the post to read, I would think. And then, Simon, we had something from you. The next post was the future of emergency medicine in the social age. I think this is related to a talk you did at the Royal Society of Medicine.
1: I was delighted to be speaking at the 30th anniversary of the section of emergency medicine at the RSM. I shared the stage with some really incredible people, actually. I mean, it was lovely to see Amal Matu in London, had a fantastic time with him, some really incredible people like Lee Wallace and many others. It's, it's worth going on to the RSM website, and I think they're going to post some of the lectures up there. What I was talking about, just very briefly, is a little bit about the future of emergency medicine, which I've talked about at Smack before, but my emerging thoughts around how The social age is changing how we handle information. And this is based on stuff from Julian Stodd, if you want to go and have a look at his blog. The old traditional model is that people who create information or information exists is usually filtered through educators or professors or universities or colleges or the media. And then that's how people consume it. In the social age where we can actually talk about stuff ourselves, just like we've been talking about the thrombolysis in stroke a few moments ago, we're actually creating the filters ourselves amongst personal learning networks, amongst group of people about people people can communicate across the world and across different health economies. And if you want the best example of this, have a look at Donald Trump. In the old days, the populace learned what they wanted to hear or what they were told to hear through the press. And that was a filter. Now, through social media, through Twitter... Donald Trump communicates direct with the population that's incredibly disruptive, but also has amazing possibilities for success about how we access information, how we speed the knowledge transfer and how we learn from each other. I mean, that's our experience in St. Edmunds about the fantastic bringing the social element of medicine together and learning faster and better. But there are risks. So have a look at that. And the slides are up there. It'll be on the RSM side as well. What a fantastic day. And I met some amazing
0: people. It's undoubted that for us at St Emlyn's, social media, all of this stuff has brought us huge benefits, but it is not without its risks. And we've seen recently some posts on Twitter that, frankly, have been difficult to read. And if you're the focus of those posts, it's not good. People around the world don't necessarily all share the same positive outlook that we try and portray. And it's really important that we try and measure that parts of the social media world are not real life there's still nothing that beats going and having a coffee in your seminar room with your staff and talking over cases. After all, that's what we want to do on social media, but there's a lot that can be lost. And also there's no anonymity when you're talking to your colleagues there. You've got to front up. You've got to say what you believe. You use a certain tone of voice. I try and regard Twitter as I would just chatting to somebody in the pub, but there's not always the case. So just be mindful that these things are great, but we've got to know how to use them and we've got to use them safely.
1: I always think that social media has to be an adjunct to being a normal person. If you're the sort of person who can only interact on social media, uh, that's not what you want.
0: No. Our aim, as we've always said before, that look after yourself is one of the aims. And the other one is don't be a dick. And that includes not being a dick on social media. It's no excuse. Our next post was a quick one about cardiac arrest centres. This is something that London have been trying out. And Simon, you did a great critical appraisal of a paper that's come out, I think, from St Thomas's.
1: Yeah, so a whole group of people actually getting together. And this was actually a pilot trial. So it's not definitive information. It was about whether or not we can do this protocol. But essentially, the concept of cardiac arrest centres being tested. Can you, instead of taking every cardiac arrest to the local centre, can you focus these patients on centres which can then potentially intervene very early and do more complex or definitive management at an earlier stage the way i think about this is we do this for trauma we do this for stroke we bypass the local units and we take them to a specialist center can you do it for cardiac arrest i think that's important because then you can start to think about doing things like ecmo you can start think about doing uh, impellers you can start thinking about doing pci whilst the patient's still arrested so this was a pilot trial and that's all we're going to say in terms of the results, really. But they show that this is possible to do. You can take patients who've had a VF, VT, non-ST elevation cardiac arrest and take them direct to a centre and then potentially look at the outcomes. The interesting thing is that they've, they've excluded the the ST elevation ones. And I think that was because they're going to be taken to a PCI centre anyway. And I think that's fair enough. If we're to improve the care of cardiac arrest patients, I think this might have something in it. And I'm really looking forward, now that I've demonstrated it's possible, to the proper RCT, which gives us an answer.
0: Many of you will know that Simon and I both work in large tertiary referral centers. And the idea that more patients will come to us with this exciting, whizzy stuff cardiac arrest, trauma, all that stuff they all seem to be coming to us. But I don't want to forget our colleagues in the DGHs who may well find that less and less of this what you could call exciting stuff is going to them. And there's a, definitely got to consider how we maintain our skills across emergency medicine, Whether there's a way in which people can work in different units, spend time in the DGHs versus the trauma centres, get skills across the board, maintain that excitement, maintain the whole breadth of what we do because after all that's why most of us went into it
1: i agree i've done time in small dghs as well as the tertiary centers and the experience is different i think the model of the future is probably hub and spoke systems and i think we're seeing that develop in a number of health economies in the uk
0: so cardiac arrest centers keep an eye out for that that may be uh, coming to you of course in london a bit easier they've got lots of hospitals close to each other and if you're like us and your next hospital is 20 minutes down the road may be less likely but let's see how that develops and hopefully the pilot trial will lead on to something more substantial. We then had a special Valentine's post, February the 14th, from the gorgeous, delightful, amazing Liz Crow. She wrote about love in critical care.
1: I really love this post. I heard Liz speak about this at the Smack conference and the post is really backing up the talk that she gave there. Again, with Liz, it was one of the funniest, most touching, thoughtful and deep presentations of the conference, but also hilariously funny. What Liz really articulates well is the need for us to be mindful of looking after each other and ourselves. And that the differentiation between work and personal life and family, to consider them to be black and white and to be in completely separate boxes is somewhat insane. That we need to understand that there's lots and lots of crossover in these areas, and we do need to think about how we care for everybody around us including the patients including our colleagues and including to some extent even the people we don't like that much
0: we've all got to face the fact that we'd like to have this differentiation we turn up to work and walk out but work follows us and we spend an awful lot of time at work some of us will spend more time at work than we spend with our family through no fault of anybody's that's just the way it works out and so blending this idea that work and life can coexist I think it is the place of people in positions and leadership to try and make that happen and empower departments to look after their staff. I do think there's more awareness about this in the NHS now, but there will be people listening who feel that their department doesn't care about them, feel their executive doesn't give two hoots so long as the four-hour target is going fine. And we have to be the ones who can change that. If I do nothing more as a clinical lead than make our staff feel more cared for, make them enjoy coming to work, That in itself is the most powerful thing I can do. If we can do other stuff, then that's great. Happy staff leads to good care. And we know that. And we can also disseminate that to our colleagues in other specialties. And we know from a blog post a few months ago that rudeness, we need to try and get rid of that. We need to set the example.
1: One of the things Liz talked about at the end of her talk and at the end of the blog post, and it's a phrase which some of you will already be familiar with, it's this concept of ikigai. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it basically says that if you have four things in the world, then you can basically be a happy person, self actualize and even transcend into higher levels, really. But the four things are, if you can find something which the world needs, and let's face it, emergency medicine is the world needs, that you can be paid for. If you have those two things together, that's great. It's a vocation. If you then add in something that you actually really enjoy doing, that you love, and you're also good at it, and you have those four things together, how lucky are you? And in medicine, we really have the opportunity to find those four things together. I know it's tough at the moment, but sometimes you just take a step back and go, you know what? This is an amazing thing to do.
0: And that's something I've tried to remind myself of and our staff of, as every single front page of every single newspaper has told us how difficult it is. We need to forget all of that stuff. Step out of our little zones and look at what we're doing. Look at the difference we're making. Look at what that means to us as individuals, but also to society in general. And that is something we can keep hold of, even on the darkest day when there's patients coming out of every single door. You can't move for people keep hold of that. It's really important. Our next post was related to our last podcast about transfers. And hopefully you've heard Nat and Simon chatting that through. Obviously, Natalie's just had a year with Sydney Hems where a lot of her work has been transfers and huge amount of knowledge there. So go back, have a listen. And there is a blog post there to accompany it. Now, our next post is, again, something about thrombolysis, but this time thrombolysis in PE. And this was by a guest contributor who will be well known to many of you from the phone med world, Arnand swalmer Mathan. Now, this comes out of our smack debate last year in Dublin, where we were both set the task of presenting a pro and a con. And Swami presented the pro. Here he articulates his arguments down on the blog post and really grateful to him for taking the time to contribute this to St Emlyn's. But there was a lot to learn there. But many for me echoes of the stroke thrombolysis type discussion. In the end, if it came down to if I was having a big PE, what would I think about having thrombolysis?
1: What Swami articulated and what you talked about in yours as well is that this is an area where there just isn't definitive evidence to say that you should always do this. There is degree of judgment to give what is essentially a potentially fatal therapy to a disease which is potentially fatal and can certainly lead to significant morbidity. I thought the argument around giving the thrombolysis was was fair. I think the argument that Swami makes in the post is that this is a balanced and, and, and a judgmental decision and I think he's very upfront and honest about this and I think when you see the debates at places like Smack or any conference really people do tend to take fairly polarised opinions What we really love about the interaction between things like the podcast, the blogs, the presentations and, and putting stuff on the Smack side and things that is that when you go and see a presentation at a conference you're never really going to get the full story but by putting it up here you can delve into the depth of the data and really make an opinion for yourself there are times when you will use thrombolysis for submassive p and i've used it in in the emergency department here in verchester and i suspect you probably used it yourself even though you came out against it for the purposes of the smack debate but unless you as an emergency medicine physician understand the data What are you doing in the research room? Are you guessing? Are you making judgments on the basis of how you feel on the day? Or is it backed up with evidence? And that's what I think is the beauty of what he's put
0: up here. And hopefully if you get a chance to look at the blog post, and for those of you doing critical appraisal for exams or just wanting to increase your skills in the area, he again goes through all of the trials, gives you a bit of an update on what's going on and talks about how to appraise that evidence. In the end, this comes down to shared decision-making with the patient in the same way we described for stroke, but also collaborative working with your colleagues, you need to all buy in. And with any of these discussions, I tend to get another consultant from a complimentary specialty to come alongside and help me make that decision.
1: And what Swami's done here is he's actually given us a almost like a consent script or as an example, it's not something you definitely have to follow, but an example about how he talks to a patient to do that shared decision making. And I think that's a really high level of learning. It's a really high level of sharing. I think it's fantastic.
0: On to our last post for the month. And this was from Janos, another member of the team who wrote a bit about benzos in back pain, that idea of giving diazepam or something similar. So your patient who presents with back pain, this is an annals paper from just this month. And again, illustrates how we can use social media for really rapid knowledge translation. The conclusion really from this paper was that benzodiazepines don't add anything for the long term and by long term, I mean, more than a few days management of back pain, they don't give any increased pain relief. And I think this has echoes of the back pain podcast we've done and other things we've talked about in the past. If you actually think about the mechanism of how benzos work, the GABA agonists, and they work in the brain, it's hard to imagine quite how they're going to help with pain relief or even muscle relaxation. I do think there's a place for them in just relaxing the patient. And I know that if I had excruciating back pain and the amount of stress that would be causing me, I'm not going to kid myself that benzos will take the pain away, but they may well take some of that anxiety away in just the initial stage. I completely agree with Janos here. I think benzos long-term for back pain are a bad idea. I don't think they work. I can't work it out pharmacologically, physiologically. It just doesn't seem to fit. I might use them just in the short term, just to calm the situation down. But I thought this was a really useful part of our armoury to again remind us that these drugs are not without complication. We should probably avoid them for long-term treatment.
1: It's certainly something which has been included in what people talk around as a back pain cocktail in the past, which was paracetamol, a non-steroidal and diazepam. And people gave it really without thinking. That's not good medicine. Now that we have increasing evidence here from data and a reasonably sized trial, I think we really need to question that. Like you, there may be occasions when I do use this, but they'll be very rare.
0: That pretty much wraps up our month on the blog site. Really hope that this podcast review of what's been going on and chats around it are helpful. Do let us know. It's something we're hoping to do every single month. So for those of you who don't get to read the blog posts, you'll have a way of keeping up with what we're doing at St Emlyn's. It's exciting times for us. Again, about to enter conference season. Smack will be upon us before we know it. There's other stuff going on.
1: We're also delighted that we are part of the BMJ Awards this year. So we've been included in the education innovation section for the BMJ Awards, which is kind of like the Oscars for medicine in the UK, he says. It's a real privilege to actually be there. We've got a presentation this week with the BMJ team. And on the basis of that, they'll decide if we actually win the final thing, which I think is announced at the beginning of May. Even if we don't win, it's going to be amazing to see social media, FOMED and St Emlyn's in the BMJ to share the fact that this is actually making a difference to patient care, to trainee learning, to consultant learning and to continuous professional development across emergency medicine in the UK and pretty much across the world, really.
0: It's definitely great to be back with you on the podcast. It's a real delight to be chatting with you again, Simon. Great to be talking to you as our podcast audience. We'll definitely be back in a month's time to give you the highlights from the blog site and the other podcasts as well about individual topics. Hopefully spring has sprung. Hopefully things in the UK for emergency physicians are on the up and we can all be enjoying our emergency medicine. Take care, everybody.